Matthew's Gospel. We've just been going section by section through Matthew's Gospel. And today we are in chapter 12, where Jesus refers to Jonah and the people of Nineveh. So here is the text, Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We want to see a miracle. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something, and some translations say someone, is, uh, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself, right? And he brings up another example. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something or someone greater than Solomon is here. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, we want you to prove that you're the Messiah. Do a miracle. Give us a sign. Give us some evidence that you are the Messiah. Now, asking God for evidence is not necessarily wrong. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the apostles, and everybody was there. Well, actually, Judas wasn't there. He was dead. But Thomas was missing. And Thomas said, I am not going to believe unless I can feel the scars in his hand and in his side. And what does Jesus do? Does he rebuke Thomas? No. He gives Thomas the evidence that he asked for. Right? So there are times it's okay to ask God for evidence, to show himself, to prove himself. But there's a difference between what I'm going to call righteous questioning and rebellious questioning. The Pharisees who came up to Jesus were not truly seeking to find out if he was the Messiah. They had already condemned him. They already said that he does miracles by the power of Satan. They were looking for evidence not to believe, but evidence to condemn him. And Jesus says, no, I will not give you evidence, except except for one more sign. The sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, I will be in the earth for three days and three nights. He's referring to his death where he would be buried in a tomb for three days and then he would rise again. I will not give you any more miracles except for one. And this one miracle, his death and resurrection is the miracle, the uber-miracle that all of humanity has to struggle with. 
Maybe you've never really contemplated the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. But Jesus is saying, this is the one sign that I will give for the whole world to struggle with, and it is undeniable truth that he is who he claimed that he was, the Messiah, his death and resurrection. So we're going to look at his death and resurrection and see, can you believe that it really happened? Why should you believe it really happened? Now, before we go there, let me point this out. Let's say you are a seeker here this morning and you're wondering, does God really exist? Is Christ really who he claimed he is? If God never gave us a single miracle, he has already given us enough evidence to prove that he exists. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Well, how have we seen his existence? How have we seen his attributes and his power? It's been clear ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. There is no excuse to wake up and look at, first of all, the existence of stuff and not conclude that there's a God. Right? Where did it come from? You say, I believe in evolution. Evolution is just a theory about how lower life forms mutate into higher life forms. It doesn't explain where stuff came from. The existence of matter screams, how did it get here? But not only, I I call that the argument from the existence of stuff, there's another argument called the argument from the existence of cool stuff. That's when you look around and you see, like you go to the zoo and you see a tiger with stripes and fangs. And then you go to the next exhibit and you see a penguin, a bird that can swim. And then you go to the next exhibit and you see a beautiful bird that can fly through the air with beautiful colors. And what this is saying is to look at all of this and conclude that one day there was nothing and then matter popped into existence and over time molecules just evolved into humans and animals and trees is inexcusable. There is no excuse for that kind of craziness, even though there are brilliant people who buy into it. God says there is no excuse. So if God never did one miracle, there's plenty of evidence for his existence. But he goes further. God spoke through prophets. In the Old Testament, they spoke, and those words were written down. In the New Testament, apostles wrote those words down. And we have a Bible full of God's very own words. But then in addition to that, he himself came to earth. Jesus came to earth. And he did miracle after miracle after miracle. And then he concluded it all with the uber miracle, his resurrection from the dead, the sign of the prophet Jonah, that he would be put into the earth just as Jonah was put into the, the belly of a fish and then come back to life. Now, let's, let's do this. Let's ask this question. Can we really believe that Jesus died 
and rose from the dead. I want to give you four reasons before we come back to Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba. But I want to give you four reasons why you can believe that this story about Jesus Christ being killed and then rising from the dead, four reasons why you can believe that it's true. All right? So here we go. Reason number one, let's take a look at the historical facts. Okay? Now, if you talk to some people today, they will say, well, how do we even know that, that Jesus existed? How do we know that it's not just a myth that somebody created. In fact, uh, I talked to one guy the other day, and he said, well, the only evidence we have that a guy named Jesus even existed is the Bible. That's not true. That's not true. Let me show you some secular evidence that a man named Jesus of Nazareth existed. There's an interesting website called ProveTheBible.net where I found this, uh, these quotes. They're actually not quotes, but they're summaries. But... Um, the uh, editor of this website has collected secular quotes from the first century or early centuries that talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Um, this is what he writes. What can we conclude about the figure Jesus Christ by only listening to non-Christians of the first centuries? Just by listening to Jesus' enemies and outsiders we can put together the following profile. So um, Josephus, Josephus was not a believer. He was a Jewish historian who recorded uh, the history of the first century. Josephus refers to Jesus as a wise man, and he was called the Christ or the Messiah. Josephus also says that Jesus gained many disciples from many nations. Then there's the Jewish Talmud, which is kind of a, compilation of the writings of many Jewish rabbis, right? The Talmud says Jesus was accused of practicing sorcery and leading Israel astray. Now, notice they don't buy into Jesus being the Messiah, but they can't deny his historical existence or even his miracles. Their explanation is that he was a sorcerer, not the Messiah, we go on, uh, Tacitus, who was another uh, first century writer, uh, Tacitus lived 56 A.D. to 117 A.D., and uh, he said this, Under Herod and during the reign of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate condemned Christ to die. There's no question that Pontius Pilate the governor of Judea, sentenced Jesus Christ of Nazareth to die. Right? The Talmud says Christ was crucified on the eve of Passover. Okay. Now, um, let me skip a couple more and move out of... In fact, actually, let me go back to one. This is amazing. Um, Thallius, his crucifixion was accompanied by three hours of unexplained darkness. So your Bible says that as he hung on the cross, darkness came over the land, but so does a secular source. 
say that for three hours there was darkness in the land. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 recites what all this secular history says, but um, he adds some things. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died, but his death was not some accident. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. So now he adds the resurrection of Christ. Why should we believe him? And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Oh, we have apostles who are witnesses. After that, he appeared to more than five of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, Paul wrote this in the first century when the witnesses were still alive. The apostles were still alive, and 500 other witnesses were still alive. Why is that important? Because Paul is saying this is all predicted in the Old Testament And it all happened, and there are living witnesses, and if you don't believe me, go check it out yourself. The fact that the gospel story that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised, the fact that that survived out of the first century without being discredited, and there were lots of people who wanted to discredit it, the fact that it survived out of the first century is strong proof that nobody could deny it. So the first reason that we need to look at the resurrection and say this happened is because it's not some fairy tale. It's embedded in very real history that cannot be denied. Now let me give you a second reason. There was an empty tomb. Jesus was put in a tomb. He was killed. He was put in a tomb. And three days later, there was no body in the tomb. Now, um, there have been skeptics throughout history who have tried to explain the empty tomb. Okay? Um, the two most prominent theories that they come up with are the stolen body theory and the uh, swoon theory. The stolen body theory says that the, the disciples stole the body. But when you really look at that, that makes no sense when you know who these disciples were. Remember, Peter, on the night Jesus is arrested, he tells Jesus, I will never deny you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter is denying that he even knows Jesus three times. And when Jesus is arrested, not only does Peter flee, but all the apostles flee. They're cowards. So are we really supposed to believe that these cowards who don't even want to admit that they know Jesus, after they watch him being crucified, they get together one night and they go, hey, got a plan. Let's steal the body. Let's beat up the guards. Let's steal the body and we'll perpetrate a lie that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, let's do that. That's crazy. The stolen body theory assumes, first of all, that Christianity is based on a bunch of lies and that the apostles had courage. Wrong. So the other theory is the swoon theory. The swoon theory says Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He fainted. 
right? And they wrapped him up in the, the linen, put him in the tomb, and then the cool air in the tomb, I don't know where you get cool air, but the cool air in the tomb uh, refreshed him, and he woke up, threw the stone away, overpowered the guards, and appeared as the Lord of life, right? Okay. Now, the problem with the swoon theory is it doesn't understand crucifixion and it doesn't understand Roman guards. Right? Basic, basic thing you need to know about crucifixion is this. When somebody was crucified on the cross, they couldn't breathe. Uh, their, their chest cavity sagged down. And to breathe, you had to push up on your feet, on the nails on your feet, to exhale, actually. So sometimes you see these movies where Jesus is on the cross and he's talking to the thief, he's talking... No, it was this grossly agonizing process where they're wreathing up and down, gasping for air. Uh, so basically, if they're breathing, they're wreathing. Now, John records what happened, which clearly tells us that he died. Right? It says, now, it was the day of the preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Why did, uh, why did they ask Pilate to have the legs broken of, uh, of the thieves? Because if the legs are broken, you can't push up to exhale anymore and you'll die. Right? The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. Why? Because they were still wreathing up and down. Break the legs, boom, boom, they die. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. By the way, that's a fulfillment of Scripture. The Old Testament says that the, the bones will not be broken. Right? How, how did they know that he was already dead? The other two were wreathing up and down. He wasn't wreathing anymore because he wasn't breathing. But just to be sure, it says instead one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, what was that for? They go, this guy's alive, boom. This guy's alive, boom. This guy's dead. But just to make sure, boom, they stick a spear through his heart. He's dead. Roman soldiers knew how to crucify people. The body's taken down, wrapped in linen, put in a tomb, and three days later, the tomb is empty. Nobody could produce the body. You know, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders did not want this thing called Christianity to take shape and form. They could have stopped it by just saying, hey, you're resurrected Messiah. Here's his body. We found it. But nobody could do that because the body was missing. He was alive and he appeared to the 500 people. Let me give you another reason you can believe in it. The changed apostles. First of all, we have the uh, cowardly apostles. But then, after Jesus rises from the dead, we see a change in them. They go out into the streets of Jerusalem and they preach with courage. The same Sanhedrin that killed Jesus hauls them in and says, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they say, we, might, we, we, we can't obey man, we have to pay, uh, obey God. And they preach, and then all of them die a martyr's death. Right? If this was a, a hoax, you know, a lot of people are willing to die for the truth. Very few people are willing to die for a hoax. 
They all died martyrs' deaths. Now, some people might say, but wait a minute. Are you saying that just because people are willing to die for something, that makes it true? Then that makes Islam true because look at all the suicide bombers. They're willing to die for Islam. No, that's not my point. My, my point is not fanaticism equals truth. My point is something changed timid, scared people into fanatics who were willing to die. What took place in between their cowardice and their courage? The resurrection of Jesus. Now, one last point I want to give you. Prophecy. You know, it would be one thing if all these events happened just randomly. That would be fantastic enough. But what we find out is Christ's death and resurrection was part of the plan all along. God in the Old Testament prophesied that a servant would come and be pierced in our place. Right? There's so many places we could go, but uh, Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected. This is written 700 years before Jesus was born. He was despised and rejected by men, but he was pierced. By the way, um, that was 200 years before Romans even invented crucifixion. And Psalm 22 talks about his hands and feet being pierced. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This not only prophesies piercing, but substitutionary death. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Uh, he doesn't defend himself as he's on trial. He's put, uh, he, he dies, uh, and it talks about him dying with the wicked and the rich. And he dies between thieves, but he's put in the rich man's tomb. So study Isaiah 53. Put it all together, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a very credible miracle. You know, another, another proof is the start of the church. One day... 3,000 Jews abandon Judaism and they get baptized and they start the first church in Jerusalem. Why? Because Peter preaches the truth of what we've just covered and they all believe. Right? So, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Absolutely. And he says that's the sign of the prophet Jonah. All right? Now, let's, uh, let's, let's move away from that. Let's go back to Jonah. Okay? Um, did Jonah really get swallowed by a fish? You know, there are a lot of people who go, hey, I can believe a lot of stuff, but I can't buy that fish story. Okay. Well, um, Jesus seemed to think it was true. He, he bases as a pattern his resurrection upon the story of Jonah being in the belly of the fish. Okay. Do you think he's really saying, well, I will really be crucified and I will really die and I will really be put in a tomb and I will really rise from the dead just like the made-up story of Jonah and the whale? No. For there to be any parallel, both have to be historical events. Now, some people say things like, well, um, there's no fish big enough that a, a man could fit into. 
I um, brought rope here, and this rope is um, 20 inches in diameter, which is the diameter of the gullet of some sharks and some whales. So let's see. Buddy, stand up. Boom. You're toast. Look at that. He could fit. <laughs> Who else wants it? Ryan, come here. <laughs> You're toast. Tight, though. It is tight. George? <laughs> Look at that. Even Pastor Brian could fit in the belly of a whale. Okay. Now, other people say, um, well, how would he get past the teeth? Some whales, uh, some whales just gulp everything whole. They don't chew. But even if, remember Jaws when Captain Quint get, gets eaten? Remember that? How do you forget that? Right? <laughs> I still have nightmares of that whole thing. Let's say, let's say the fish actually chewed him up, swallowed him. Isn't the pattern resurrection? Couldn't God have resurrected Jonah from the whale? See, bottom line is this. Once you say God exists, then no miracle is impossible. What's more difficult, creating the whole world with the word or preserving a man in the belly of a fish? Do you believe you're going to be resurrected one day? What's so hard about preserving the life of a man or resurrecting a man from a fish? So uh, those who, who uh, have trouble with Jonah, your trouble is bigger than that. You have a problem. You're caught in this thing called naturalism. Naturalism is the scientific worldview that says real science is only about what we can naturally observe, and anything supernatural is by definition cut out of the picture. I believe that the nature glorifies God pointing to his existence, and once you believe in God, you now have to broaden your category to supernaturalism. There is a God who can intervene in the natural world and do amazing things like walk on water and raise the dead and preserve people in fish. Okay? So, now, let's get to the real point. You're probably going, it's about time. All right? Here's the real point. Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something or someone greater than Jonah is here. He is saying the people of Nineveh, they at least repented at the preaching of Jonah. Think about the contrast between Jesus and Jonah. Right? Jonah, a reluctant, disobedient prophet who doesn't want to preach, is forced to go to this wicked people, and he says eight words. Right? Yet 40 days 
and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So a reluctant prophet brings a message of condemnation and the whole place repents. Jesus, on the other hand, goes not to a outwardly wicked people, but he goes to his own people. He preaches not eight words, but thousands of words, does undeniable miracles, and what do they do? They reject him. So the people of Nineveh, this is going to happen, on judgment day will rise up and condemn the Jews who rejected Jesus during his day. Anybody know where Nineveh is today? Anybody know? <laughs> where where is it? It's Iraq. It's uh here's here's uh Israel, Jerusalem right here. There's Nineveh. It's Mosul. Right? That's modern day Mosul in uh Iraq. Were were you there? Yeah. Okay, we have we have uh soldiers over there right now. Okay. So Jesus um, contrasts, really, the response of the people of Nineveh to the unbelief of the people of his day. Now, he brings up one more example. He brings up the queen of the south. Now, what's this referring to? The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's he saying here? Well, remember, God raised up a king, King David. King David had a son named Solomon. Solomon, God said, I'll give you anything you want. And he said, give me wisdom. God made him the wisest man on the face of the earth. And rumors spread all over the planet that Solomon was the wisest man on the planet. And the queen of Sheba, where's that? Well, here's Jerusalem. Go all the way down here in Saudi Arabia to the bottom. Sheba is a guest to be here. She hears a rumor of a rumor of a rumor that God has made this king in Jerusalem the wisest man in the world. She packs up her camels and her caravans and travels over the desert all the way up to Jerusalem. It's not like getting in your Honda and going for a little drive. Uh, That probably took years for her to move to Jerusalem and sit at the feet of Solomon because she hears that divine revelation has been given to the king of Israel. Now, let me contrast this. Um, In fact, let 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 me apply this to a different situation. Sometimes people go, you know, I can't believe in Christianity because it just seems unfair. How can it be fair that you must be a Christian when there are people all over the world who are raised in different traditions, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, It's not fair. In other words, what they're saying is God has to, God can't give us the true religion. He has to use any old human religion that's already out there to uh, be a road to get to him. Well, you know, when people say it's not fair, here's what they're saying. People are saying that the culture you raised in so conditions you that you can't be expected to seek after the true God. But what about these two examples? Here we have Nineveh worshiping their pagan gods, 
wicked, evil people, and one reluctant prophet goes, speaks eight words, and they all find the true God. Right? Then, okay, that's an example of a, of a missionary being sent and people finding the true God. The other example is of a queen of Sheba who has her false gods, and she hears a rumor of a rumor of a rumor, and she is willing to put forth maximum effort to go hear Revelation. And Jesus is saying, humanity, you're accountable to seek after truth like these people. What will happen to America? We are awash in divine revelation. There's a lot of garbage out there, too. A lot of false, mamby-pamby preachers who don't preach the truth. And a lot of... uh, A lot of garbage deceiving people. But there is also the truth being spoken clearly in many places. And what do most people do? They're not like the Queen of Sheba who would seek after truth with all their heart. They're not like the the people of Nineveh who will repent, not at words of grace, but words of judgment. I pray. I pray that when the people of Nineveh rise up and the Queen of Sheba rise up and condemn the people of Jesus' day, that we won't be condemned either. That we will be like the people of Nineveh who repent when they hear the truth. And we will be like the people, like the Queen of Sheba, who's willing to put forth some effort to find the truth and not just say, oh, well, I was raised this way. I guess I'll just believe whatever I've been taught. Will you seek with all your heart to find the truth? And will you repent when the truth hits you in the face? Now, let me close with this. What is the truth? What is the message that Jesus came to to give? Now, we, we talked about his death and resurrection. Paul said that his death was not just a historical event, but he died for our sins. The main message is this. We are sinners who need a Savior. If you're after some other message, there's plenty of other places that will give you other messages. But the message that he came to proclaim is that we are sinners who can be forgiven of our sin. How? He paid the price on the cross. He rose from the dead showing that his uh, his. Payment was acceptable before God. He ascended into heaven, and now he's calling all to repent of their sin, to turn to him, and trust in him to have eternal life. You say, how do I do that? How do I trust in him? You stop trusting your own goodness, you turn to him, and you receive him as Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have not left us without witness the witness of creation, the witness of your word, and the truth of your resurrection. And Lord, you call people today, as you did during the time of Jonah, during the time of the Queen of Sheba, during the time where you were here on this earth, you call us to turn from sin and trust in you. And you promise that all who turn to you will be forgiven because of your sacrifice on the cross. If you're here this morning and you have never, ever, truly trusted in Christ, 
He calls you. Seek after him. Open your heart. Trust in him. And you will find rest for your souls. Thank you, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.